Well, 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 hello, folks, and welcome to We the Peeps. This is the American Soccer Podcast in which you are going to get to know everything that you need to know about the U.S. Ninja Turtles. I'm Clayton, and I'm a rapper. I'm Kwame, and I'm a doctor. And if I'm not mistaken, I believe we love the Nats. That is true. Always and forever. Oh. It's We The Peeps. It's We The Peeps. Welcome to We The Peeps. Are you ready for We The Peeps? Holy moly, it's We The Peeps. Okay, folks, welcome on in. We are going to She The Peeps today. We're going to STP... Just felt like, uh, you know, there's there's a whole other world of soccer that we haven't been talking about, and I, I especially got that sense during the peeps. For those of you who listen through the peeps, thank you very much. Our yearly award show, um, there it, Kwame was like a was like a tiger in the corner, ready to go to mixed martial arts combat, and uh, uh, with with all his takes, his his WNT takes. There was takes just coming out of the cracks. And uh, I don't think we've, I, I, I think we need a little bit more, more room for those takes, Kwame. I always have a lot to say. And yeah, I think it's, uh, it's good we can have a, a women's national team uh, centered episode. So I'm psyched. All right. Well, first and always, folks, please uh, follow us on Twitter if you feel like it, at WTP Pod. We're always on there hanging out, doing stuff, saying stuff, thinking stuff, wondering stuff, looking at gifts. You can also, if you feel like uh, contributing, if you would like this show to grow, here's some stuff you can do. For one, rate us uh, five stars, please. Five stars, all the stars. We need the stars. And there's a chance if you do the five-star review that you're, you're... your rating or your review will be read on this air. I uh, can't promise that we'll have Dr. Joe Macknick read them live ever again, uh, but some, some such thing may occur. Who knows? So do that. Five stars, please. And uh, reach... Pardon me. And uh, reach out to us on Patreon. Support us, please. This show, although, uh, although it may seem effortless and free... It is, it is not. It costs time, and it costs many Jurgen bucks. And so for just, uh, just, just $5, which at this point is, I believe, 0.001 Jurgen bucks uh, due, to, due to inflation and, and you know, market, market rates I don't fully understand, uh, for that price, you can become a ratified peep and forever and always be a part of uh, the, the U.S., winning tournaments, and be a part of this podcast taking over the world. So please do that. Hit us up on patreon.com forward slash WTP pod. That is the end of housekeeping. All right, let's dive into it. I'm psyched. I'm psyched to learn more about the good Nats, and I hope you are as well. Kwame, I've often asked that we start this, this, uh, these conversations with a little bit of a shout-out, because let's be real, we're two dudes talking uh, about a women's sport, and um, it's, it just feels right to highlight some female voices at the outset, just in case people are interested in, in hearing uh, some of that action. So I'm wondering if you can recommend someone for us that people can check out if they end up wanting to learn more about the good Nats. Sure. You know, I think uh, I, we, you know, we both 
try to do our best to center women's voices in these discussions and also to acknowledge as frequently as possible that this is our opinions and the players we are criticizing know a thousand times uh, more than we do. Uh, and I think this recommendation actually encapsulates those both. Uh, so Kelly O'Hara, right back for the national team, uh, has started a podcast uh, called Just Women's Sports, uh, and I think she just started her second season. Uh, and she often uh, interviews other soccer players, but um, but interviews women athletes from all the other different sports. And so uh, her podcast is a window into uh, the national team, uh, particularly when she's interviewing uh, a teammate. Uh, she recommended she's interviewed Mallory Pugh, Becky Saubron, plenty of other people. Uh, so check that out. Uh, just Women's Sports Podcast with Kelly O'Hara. Oh, baby. I just subscribed. It's got a, it's got a lot of five-star ratings, guys. A lot of five-star ratings. This, is, this guest list is looking insane right now. I can't wait to dive in. Mal Pugh, Kat Osterman, uh, we've got Nastia Lukin, uh, Becky Sauerbrunn most recently. Come on, y'all. Check this out. I'll, uh, uh, I'll dive in here and, and I'll have some takes uh, next up about uh, Kelly's podcast. Kwame, what's been going on with this team? So I did it, I did it you know, a, a, little, a little Googling, a little YouTubing. I saw a bunch of highlights. I saw two games versus Columbia. I'm not sure what happened there. Uh, I saw 10 goals in total. Um, I saw Mewis sisters last I checked in. There was, a, there was one Mewis, and there's two. That's exciting. I also saw a Katarina Macario appearance, someone you told us about on this show quite a while ago. Uh, and it looks like that dream has has come to fruition. Yeah, so there's a lot going on with the women's national team right now. We're kind of in between uh, a number of things. Um, we had they had the two games, friendly games against Colombia uh, in January. Um, won both of those games, uh, and it was a pretty uh, interesting. Um, uh, roster that got brought into that extended camp and then those friendlies they had to they had the opportunity to have a slightly larger roster um, and so we saw some names uh, that maybe we haven't seen in the picture in a little bit it seems that Flacco is considering seriously um, and then we're just uh, about a week out of before the start of the she believes cup uh, the four-person tournament that the U.S. hosts pretty much every non-World Cup year. Actually, no, we do it in the World Cup, too. Um, and that'll be kicking off uh, in about a week. Uh, but of course, everyone, uh, in terms of media, in terms of fans, and certainly in terms of players, has their eyes on the Olympics, which is still scheduled for Japan in July, uh, and uh, is an 18-person roster. And so even though you know we're four or five months away, and there is still uncertainty about whether the Olympics will happen and what what it will look like. Um, there's you know there's no time to lose in terms of trying to earn your spot. So there's a lot of irons in the fire. We've you know we've got this prestigious tournament that is right on our doorstep, but there's many many other things that we're keeping our eye on. Um, not just NWL is about to start up soon. England is in full swing. There's a ton going and on. And a quick side note, right? The Olympics, in this case, almost as prestigious as the World Cup itself. A little different than the men's game in that respect. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. So uh, is that all the tournaments? We've got She Believes. We have the Olympics. Anything else major tournaments for this team this year? 
Uh, I believe there is some talk of another friendly in March or April, but I'm not, I don't believe anything has been officially announced okay. as of yet. Okay. Um, All right. Well, warm us up for She Believes. Who's going to be there? Who are we playing? And uh, what? what's the hot goss? So um, we are scheduled to play uh, Canada, Brazil, and Argentina. And there's been a little bit of turnover in uh, in who was invited to this tournament. Uh, Japan was actually <coughs> one of the original teams that was going to be invited. Um, but they, a few weeks ago, maybe last month, uh, decided they needed to pull out due to COVID uh, concerns. Uh, and so Argentina was a quick replacement. Um, both Canada and Brazil are pretty longtime rivals of uh, the U.S., um, the U.S. has generally had the upper hand, but, uh, you know, both of them are top 10 in the world teams uh, and, you know, really are not intimidated at all by the U.S. Uh, and then Argentina uh, is similar in many ways to Colombia, who we just had those two friendlies against, in that they are um, up-and-coming teams. They have a lot of talent. They come from uh, their two nations that have a very rich soccer tradition and and fan base um but the support for the women's teams from the national federation uh are very substandard uh and you know sort of very poor compared to the support that goes to the men's teams uh and so argentina i think is probably going to be less of a challenge on the field as compared to Brazil and Canada, but I think it is important for them to be included. Um, it will be exciting to show if they, in what ways they have grown since the World Cup, because they were a World Cup team, mm -hmm. and hopefully also this will give them more exposure and clout for their fight for greater equality back home in, in Argentina. Yeah. Can you remind folks who, uh, like me, have kind of remember, but have vaguely, only vaguely, there was the, the the Argentinian national team, women's national team in the World Cup was a pretty big deal uh, at at that time, right? Wasn't there? It was a whole it was a whole thing. Um, can you remind me what that storyline was? Well, so there there are a few things, but uh, um, Argentina, and and this is not unique, and so I, I and honestly, I may be. Um, mixing up a little of this narrative with some other women's mm -hmm. teams who were in similar but slightly different situations. The issue for many of these teams, and I believe Argentina was one of them, is that they receive so little support, either financially or organizationally, from their national federations. And what that often means is that they may not play any games for two years and then suddenly get dropped into World Cup qualifying. Um, the equipment that they get is substandard, often sort of handed down from uh, male teams. Um, they train in locations that, um, you know, the, the uh, facilities, the food, everything just isn't as good. Um, they often have coaches who are part-time and who frankly often view the job as a thankless task um, from the uh, from their federations. Um, they will make, you know, pejorative comments about 
having to work with women. Um, they don't seem to take it seriously. They make coaching decisions that are really not so hot. Um, and I think Argentina in the World Cup was was in that position and also had a relatively young team. And they were a team on the field. You could tell there was a lot of really raw, exciting talent, but they hadn't played together and their coaching perhaps wasn't up to um, up to the same standard as one would expect. And it's not as if there's a there's a, a shortage of good Argentinian uh, soccer coaches. Uh, Argentina, I think, had one of the most exciting games in the World Cup where they came back, I think, to tie. Um, they were down 3 nothing to Scotland, I believe, and came back to tie it 3-3 to um, and get their first point. And it was a really... It was a really exciting game. Um, so this is a yeah, this is a team who's taking their chances and and creating their own destiny. And when I say team, yeah. I, I really mean the players, right? That's yeah, which is pretty exciting to watch. And this is another, um, perhaps another chapter in that story. Um, tell us about yeah. what kind of opportunities are here in the She Believes Cup for the United States and the other teams involved. Like, what is this? You know what kind of uh, I'm I'm imagining that there there's this is a moment where players can make a name for themselves for the first time where where teams can can stake their claim in the in the uh, in in terms of where they stand um, relative to the greatness of the U.S. national team. So this this she believes cup the inter- the U.S. team as I said before is kind of an interesting. Uh, position coach jill ellis i think in the past we and we've talked about and this was this was my opinion they tended to look at a relatively narrow pool of players Mm. and perhaps um did not credit nwsl or or club team in general performance as much as she did um performance in national team camps and in games. Um, and so sometimes you would have a player who's doing really well in college or in the NWSL, um, and they would get pulled into U.S. camp, and they might have a middling performance, and you wouldn't really see them again. Um, or there'd be people who are really tearing it up at the club and maybe wouldn't get called in. Uh, Vlatko perhaps by temperament, but also because he was a coach in the NWSL for a a long time, uh, is casting a really, really wide net. Um, This perhaps wouldn't have been the case if the Olympics had not been delayed by COVID and he only had a year in between. But now that he has all this extra time, um, we are seeing um, a, a lot of rotation in these camps. We're seeing a lot of the core people come in time after time, but... I think it's clear that there's more competition than we might have seen. A good example of that is in the goalkeeping um, uh, position. So for the She Believes Cup, Alyssa Nair has been called in, um, but and she is you know the the most consistent presence. But the other two keepers that have been called in are Jane Campbell and Casey Murphy, uh, two players who were not on the World Cup roster and probably weren't particularly close to making the World Cup roster, um, which is not to say that they're not excellent goalies. They're fabulous goalies. Um, but they're getting a shot in the She Believes Cup. And interestingly, um, there's been a lot of turnover in the goalkeeper um, p- 
uh, roster just compared to last month's camp against Colombia, where you had Alyssa Nair, but you also had um, Aubrey Bledsoe, Ashlyn Harris, um, who was a goalie in the World Cup, and also Jane Campbell again. Uh, and so what it seems like may be the case is that Vlaco is looking at um, maybe bringing in a younger younger crop of goalies and perhaps giving them more playing time in friendlies than has been the case in the past. Mm. So number one goalie position is pretty much locked in, but I would say um, less so than was the case under Coach Ellis that the second and third position, and really for the Olympics there's only going to be a second position, is pretty wide open. It could be the experience of Ashlyn Harris, but... The U.S. is blessed with deep goalies, uh, and I would say that you know one through at least six, and maybe even one through eight. If you told me the U.S. had to play an important game with a number six goalie at their depth, I would wonder what happened. But I would not be <laughs> like, "Oh no, this is like a really bad weakness." I would yeah. be like, "This person doesn't have experience with the national team." But they're a hell of a goalkeeper. Yeah, you'd so, be more worried you know, about I'm what okay. happened at one through five than how number six is going to do. Yes, you know, maybe some strange FIFA rule. Uh, <laughs> so, um, so what do you what do you expect to be? Uh, what are you looking for? Where where's your eye at? Are there certain players that may make or break it uh, during this tournament? Are there certain potential surprises coming up? Uh, I think that the the cup there are a couple of questions. Uh, I think the defense the defense is more or less settled. And so again, let let me step back for a second. Sure. If we're if we're talking about um, who has a shot at the final Olympic roster, because that's what it's. That's what it's largely about. There's a lot of names. I think that for the defense, they're probably going to take six defenders to the Olympics. They're probably going to take five midfielders, and they're probably going to take five forwards in addition to two goalkeepers for a roster of 18. For the defense, it's pretty locked in that we're going to see the same starting four that we did in the World Cup. Kelly O'Hara, Abby Dahlkemper, Becky Sauerbrunn, Crystal Dunn. Uh, And then... The two defenders after that, um, it's a bit of a question. And I would say there's probably four, maybe five people who are vying for those two spots. Ali Krieger, Emily Sonnet, Tierna Davidson, uh, Alana Cook, um, who's a name that a lot of people won't know. She went to Stanford. She plays at uh, PSG in France uh, and who Vlaco uh, seems to really highly rate. Um, and then an outside shot would probably be Mitch Purse um, at backup right back. Uh, so, and I think those final two spots, we really can't say. And so I think that's going to be uh, a very interesting question to sort of come out of this She Believes Cup. Um, unfortunately, Alana Cook was not released by her team to participate in the She Believes Cup. Um, this is a side note, but in the future, the U.S. generally, because so many of its players have been in the NWSL and because U.S. soccer was paying so many of those salaries, and I won't go down that rabbit hole again, um, but basically could call in U.S. players whenever they wanted. They didn't have to worry about FIFA windows. Uh, but the She Believes Cup is not occurring during a FIFA window. 
And so PSG said, we don't have to release this player. We're in a very tight race for the top of the French division with uh, Olympic Lyon, um, who wins every year. But actually, PSG is in the lead right now. We don't want to give up our starting central defender. So Alana Cook was not released. Mm. That may hurt her chances of making the Olympics. uh, But this is something we may also see in the future, uh, which may erode a little bit one of the advantages that U.S. soccer has always had. We could pull in our players whenever we wanted for however we wanted. Do you get um, Do you get the sense that there's also, there's a silver lining here in that the club game, the women's club game is um, becoming more competitive and maybe, yeah, more, a bigger deal? Oh, yes, absolutely. I think that this is definitely more good than bad. Yeah. Um, the club um, you know, the club game expanding, um, more of our U.S. players playing in, in sort of different leagues. Um, and this is also, you know, it would be interesting to see if actually NWSL teams start flexing these sorts of muscles now that they're signing players to independent contracts away from U.S. soccer. So I think Absolutely. it's a net positive. Um, but I think U.S. soccer is probably going to have to adjust um, so that they can still retain as much of an advantage as possible with long camps and, and players playing together as much as as we can. Sure. I wonder if I can just take us on a, the quickest club detour for a second, and then we can loop back to the She Believes. Uh, yes, please. Up. Okay. Where, Love me some let's do this thing. Uh, I'm always curious, Kwame, about your sort of where you're pointing people's attention, where you would point people's attention to in the club game coming up, right? In the last, uh, and during the peeps, you kind of explained this European migration. So there's, there's for, for reasons, there's lots of amazing US players moving over to Europe. Um, and lots of players in general. Um, are there certain clubs, teams, leagues in Europe that you think people should be paying extra close attention to if they want to get into the women's club game? Right now, um, the probably the best league to be paying attention to is um, is the FAWSL, which is the English um, the English uh, top flight women's league, um, and it has. I think there are 10 teams in the league right now, and a lot of them are attached to names that followers of um, professional soccer in general will know. Manchester United, Manchester City, Arsenal, Chelsea, Reading, uh, Bristol City, uh, Everton. And that is a league that um, right now is about as competitive as it's been in years. Um, It's a really tight tussle at the top between Arsenal, Chelsea, uh, Manchester City and Manchester United. Um, and just for the quality of soccer that's there, it's at a really high level. Um, a number of the games can be watched either on NBC Sports Network, if U.S. Uh, listeners have access to that network, but also um, there's something called the FA um, Player um, which is like the you know the English Soccer Federation, where a lot of these games are available to stream for free um, through the English FA's website. So there's a lot of access to watching these games. They're usually pretty early on Saturday mornings. Nice. Um, and right now there's a lot of uh, U.S. players over there, particularly on Manchester City. Sam Ewis, Rose Lavelle, and newly Abby Dahlkemper are there, so familiar faces. On Manchester United, Kristen Press and Tobin Heath are there. Um, I don't believe there are any American players on Chelsea or Arsenal, but there are 
players who will be familiar if people are fans of the NWSL. Sam Kerr, um, who the Australian star is, um, is at Chelsea. Uh, at Arsenal, Vivian Niedema, um, the Dutch star. Uh, Caitlin Ford, who played in the NWSL um, for many years, is there now. So that league uh, is is really competitive and they're kind of in the stretch run. It's sort of the last couple of months battling for the league title, battling for Champions League spots, uh, really high quality game. Nice. Uh, right now, the NWSL is in its preseason. Uh, I think games will be starting up in April. Okay. So we'll stay tuned on that. We'll see what happens with the NWSL. But uh, if you're craving some some sweet Nats club action, go check that out in the FA. It seems to me, so we talked a little bit about the uh, potential shakeups, newcomers to the defensive line. There's one obvious name, a very important newcomer in Katarina Macario, who will be playing her, her dual national affiliate, Brazil, in the She Believes Cup, if I'm not mistaken. Yes, yes, she will be. She's been called in and has been released by her team. And uh, so so how do you see Katarina Macario's presence affecting uh, the Nats for the, in, for the years to come? Um, I think that she is likely to be a transcendent player. Um, I have been following her and we've seen and we've talked about how she really shattered a lot of records at Stanford. Um, and has really been go- very good at the you know the youth level, and has been gunning to play for U.S. soccer for uh, a long time, and only recently got um, got her citizenship, got her passport, and got her clearance for FIFA. Um, so she was actually able to play in those recent friendlies against Colombia, um, and uh, I think I think she's going to be a star. And I would not have said this a month ago, but I think she's just about a lock. For the Olympic roster, oh, baby. which is crazy to say, yeah. But I'm basing this on, I'm basing this on a couple of things. The main thing I'm basing it on is the way that her U.S. teammates are talking about her. Uh, if you listen to Megan Rapinoe's uh, press conference during the Columbia friendlies and the way she talked about Katarina Macario. Uh, they're seeing her as fitting in with a team right now, and they're like, "Wow, this player is, you know, is is ready and is light years ahead of where I was at at this age." Like, there's an excitement as they talk about her. Um, she got into the game at against Colombia, the first game. Um, she came in at halftime. She was not actually expecting to come in when she did. Um, Sophia Smith, who's also a super exciting player, um, but was unfortunately injured, um, picked got an injury in the warm-ups of the first Columbia game. Uh, so Katarina Macario came in. She played out of position and still looked incredibly comfortable. Um, and I think it was very involved. I think got an assist. And then the second game uh, got a start. Um, sort of played at the sort of false number nine and scored, you know, within, you know, the first few minutes of the game and just looks, just looks comfortable, looks like a baller. Um, uh, and, and this is, you know, with having, she's been in some camps before, but hasn't been able to be on the field because of the, 
um, sort of FIFA, um, you know, and sort of passport issues. Uh, but she, you know, but the way she, everyone is talking about her and the way she looks on the field, she looks ready. And then also one of the question marks for me was that she chose to sign with Olympic Lyon rather than enter the NWSL draft. Um, and for those who don't know, Olympic Lyon is the most stacked team in uh, in the women's club game. Uh, I think they've won the Champions League like seven years running. They've won the French League like 10 years running or something like that. They basically have the core of the women's French national team plus a smattering of the best players from Germany and Canada and all these other places. They're, they're a behemoth. And she signed with this team. And the, the question that I had and many other people had was, you know, the Olympics are six months away. If she's not playing, what are her chances of making the team? Uh, she had her de- debut for Olympic Lyon just a couple of days ago. Like she's been part of the team for like less than a month. Uh, Amandine Henri picked up an injury in their most recent game. Um, and she got subbed in in like the 35th minute. Uh, and they kind of adjusted the lineup for her. Like she doesn't actually play Henri's position. So she came in and they moved someone else back to Henri's position. Amandine Henri is like the captain of the team. Uh, and she played and played well in a 2-1 victory in a key match for her team. Uh, so that tells me that not only is Vlatko and Megan Rapino and other of these U.S. soccer veterans saying, you belong, so is Olympic Lyon, who's got a stacked bench. Like, they didn't have to put her in. They chose to put her in in a key game early on. Uh, so I think she's going. And the question is, where is she going? Mm. Um, because she, Vlaco is basically listing her as a midfielder. So let's step back again for a second. Mm-hmm. We said kind of that there's probably going to be five midfield spots, right? Four of them are pretty clearly, barring injury, Julie Ertz, Roosevelt, Lindsay Horan, Sam Mewis, right? That's sort of the core four for the World Cup, and I don't think anyone sees that changing. Um, they... Katamarina Macario is listed as a midfielder. And I think all the signs are that she'll take that fifth spot. Uh, so what does that mean, though, then for our midfield depth? And what does that mean for the forward line? Because Macario is actually a player that's sort of unlike anyone else we have. She's probably closest to Rose Lavelle. Mm-hmm. Um, but not exactly she's she's more of a she's more of a 10 slash false nine natural player uh at least from what i've seen and and the way other people have described her uh which is not quite rose lavelle lavelle is more of a natural kind of creative central midfielder number 10 you can sometimes pull her out to the flanks a little bit uh and so do you include macario as a midfielder um or does she take kind of one of the forward spots and do you bring uh, six midfielders and maybe four out-and-out forwards knowing that you can place Macario in the forward in a pinch if need be? You could also put Crystal Dunn 
in a forward or midfield slot if need be. Uh, there's all this sort of 3D chess that's happening. Mm-hmm. Um, because, as you said earlier, there's another Mewis on the team. There's, there's another Mewis. Watch uh, out. Yeah. And so Christy Mewis, who's actually the older sister of Samantha Mewis, uh, who was a fixture on the national team in the past, um, but then had some bad knee injuries and really has had to sort of fight her way back uh, these past several years. Uh, so she's really now only now at kind of full strength, I would say. Uh, and she's knocking on the door. Um, but she's also more of a, I would say, more of an attacking midfielder, um, kind of more of like an uh, sort of box-to-box number eight, you know, sort of maybe a number 10. And she's really exciting as well. Uh, the question that keeps me up late at night <laughs> is... Uh, is uh, what happens if Julie Ertz cannot play? Uh, because Julie Ertz, as we've talked about before, is, I mean, you can argue she's the best player on the team. Uh, it's not, I mean, you could say like eight different people are the best player on the team and you could have an argument. So I'm not going to, you know, sort of, I'm neither going to, I'm neither confirmed nor denied yeah. that I think Julie Ertz is the best player on the team. But, you can argue that she's the beating heart of the team and maybe the most irreplaceable player on the mm-hmm. team. Uh, and so what happens if she can't play either through injury or, you know, uh, yellow card suspension? Mm-hmm. Uh, who plays the number six? Um, of who is in the current camp, I would probably say that it's Lindsay Horan. Um, would slot back into that defensive midfield slot. Um, But she plays it a little differently than Julie Ertz, and I think that um, she doesn't quite... Her is more of the Busquets sort of, like, elegance, it seems. Yeah, I think think that she, in that sort of deep-lying midfield role... I think she's best as like a double pivot as a she two had the, by of, just side note she but, had the dankest assist in the first Columbia game. The, it was I think the first or second goal of that game to Sam. Mewis. Lindsay Horan's assists are are otherworldly. I mean Lindsay's <laughs> the Lindsay Horan's stats. It's like Lindsay Horan's vision and passing. Uh, I think you know I consistently say is. I think above anyone else on the team. I I struggled to think of a time when she received the ball and didn't already know exactly where the next pass was going to go. Uh, and often that puts her steps ahead of the defense. I think that she solves pressure and solves problems of space better than anyone else on the team. And, uh, you know, the her assist against Columbia was fabulous. Uh, you know, Alex Morgan's tea-sipping uh, goal against uh, England in the World Cup, that was a Lindsay Horan assist kind of out of nowhere. <laughs> Lindsay Horan um, special. Yeah, but you know she's not. Uh, she's not. I think a sort of destroyer at the number six position no. in the way that Julie Ertz is. She can play it and play it well, 
Um, but I do, I do wonder if, um, if Vlaco might, if Vlaco stays awake at night the way I do. Yeah. Does, so does this come down to about, a, so Katarina Macario as a midfielder takes away an opportunity for a stronger defender, uh, to be a stronger midfield, a stronger defender who plays midfield. Uh, to come. Yes, and I think you could try to squeeze in Macario at the forward line and maybe bring someone like Andy Sullivan, mm-hmm. who is a great defensive midfielder, is not on this roster um, because she picked up an injury at the last camp. Um, and she has been a little bit injury prone over the last couple of years, which I think is why she hasn't quite emerged uh, the way that um, the way that her talent would be. But she is she's a she's a really, really talented defensive midfielder. And, and for my money, although she plays it differently than Ertz um, is, I think, is sort of a natural replacement. Um, your other option, there, there's a million options with this team. But what other people have said is you could possibly take only five defenders knowing that, and if you bring extra defensive cover for Julie Ertz, then in a pinch, you can put Julie Ertz at the center back, which is where she plays for her club team. Mm -hmm. And then you can still bring backup for Ertz and you can bring Macario. Mm -hmm. Uh, But, you know, that all of these are risk reward kind of calculations. Yeah. Well, I got to say, I, I hope for some Olympics, Katarina Macario breakout star, uh, action, but we'll see, we'll see. And I think, yeah. you know, everyone's got a chance to, to write their own future here at the, she believes cup. So tune in, uh, Thursday, February 18th versus Canada, Sunday, February 21st versus Brazil. And then Wednesday, February 24th, Versus Argentina. Yeah. Um, Kwame, any, could, yeah. Any last thoughts on specifically like the She Believes Cup and roster stuff before we we turn a corner here? Yeah, but brief, I'll try to be brief because yeah, yeah. I realize I just spent a ton of time talking about the midfielders and we didn't even touch on the forward competition at all, which might be even more competitive than the midfield, or at least equally so. Um, but. I, I'll just briefly say that I think that um, if they end up bringing... So in this camp, there are six forwards. Um, and that does not even include uh, Tobin Heath, who is out with an ankle injury that she suffered several weeks ago, and she's probably out until April um, recovering from that. So there are seven forwards right now for five spots and that's even if you don't include Macario or anyone else who might emerge so i would say that there is a reasonable chance that Carly Lloyd or Megan Rapino may not be on the olympic roster oh and that has to do with I think for me, as much uh, much to do with versatility and style as anything else. So Vlatko is 
uh, and for people who were listening the first time, I realized I haven't said Vlatko is the coach of the women's national team. <laughs> so uh, sorry uh, if you're if you've been lost or who's this Vlatko guy? He's the coach <laughs> of the team. He is um, instilling a a pressing style, a sort of whole team pressing style. He said he wants to attack without the ball, uh, and so um, with a a condensed tournament like the Olympics with a small roster, energy, pressing ability, and versatility, I think are key. Um, I think Tobin Heath and Kristen Press are locks. I think Alex Morgan, um, who's still sort of working her way back from a layoff due to pregnancy and then recovering from COVID, but I think you know, you don't leave your most prolific goal scorer behind. Um, And then I think Lynn Williams, who is an incredibly fast and talented forward for North Carolina, is probably on the team as well. And Carly Lloyd, although in her late 30s, I think 38 or maybe 39 by the time the Olympics starts has shown very little signs of slowing down uh and similarly for megan rapino kind of age i think is 34 or 35 they're both coming back from long layoffs and neither of them have the positional versatility of everyone else that i've just mentioned who maybe with the exception of alex morgan can play two or even three positions across the front line i think carly can pretty much play one and uh, Rapino, more or less at at that high level, probably just one. Uh, and so, if you factor in age, fitness, style, um, I think one of them may be left off. And I'm not saying that they should. I'm not saying that they, you know, that they aren't good enough for this team anymore. If it was a 20 person roster, they'd be there. But it's 18, and that's. Yeah, very very tight. Wow. So we might be we might be turning a corner here this year, 2021, baby. It's got everything. It's got everything. Um, I'm psyched to find out. I, you know, I, I, Carly Lloyd, never say never. I'm always gonna want Carly Lloyd there. But um, and it's it's interesting. There the uh, it's interesting the thing with Alex Morgan. It's funny because she's the clearest. She's really the only clear number nine, like point of the spear player to me uh mm-hmm. it seems like and in a weird way it's that clarity that's the, of of purpose that is allow that is you know forcing the hand like she's got to be there um so there's there's something strange about that where versatility across the board is what's opening the door for so many players and with alex morgan in particular though it's almost the reverse yeah i think you know you i think you always need a goal scorer yeah you know and i think um although Press and Heath and certainly Lloyd um, uh, are all, you know, sort of proven goal scorers. And Megan Rapino um, is incredibly dangerous from free kicks oh, no. and penalty That's, kicks. Yeah. We've known don't, that. don't get us but, wrong. All of these players yeah. can score goals. Right. Yeah. <laughs> We're just talking about the archetypal, yeah, the, the Cunaguero yeah. striker role, whereas Carly Lloyd is, is a little different than that. Yeah, Carly Lloyd is a false ninety. Yeah, Carly Lloyd is a yeah is more of a I think 
uh, you know, attacking midfielder number 10, who's now yeah. become a number nine as as she's progressed in her career. Uh, Kristen Press, interestingly, has been playing number nine primarily for Manchester United. Oh, interesting. Uh, so that was maybe an interesting competition. Um, but yeah, it's it's all up in the air. Um, uh, and uh, so we'll know, find out. We'll find out in the next uh, in the next couple of weeks. There's yeah, it, it'll be interesting to see what the rotation is for these games. I expect Vlatko to heavily rotate who he sees on the field more so. I expect to see more rotation than we generally saw under Coach Ellis. I expect I especially expect that at the goalkeeper position. So there's there's a whole other angle here uh, to this. Something that you brought up to us after the peeps uh, recording was com- concluded that I think is is really interesting and really important to understand the character of this team. And it has little little to none to do with tactics, fitness, any of that, uh, player development. It's a totally cultural uh, issue. So as, as we always say on this show, everyone uh, is welcome to be a listener of this show. And, and we're just trying to figure this shit out as Americans together. So let's let's dive in. There, there has been a uh, a conflict there has been a, a some there have been differing opinions uh, in terms of how to address the kneeling during the anthem decision okay and and we're proud i'm proud of the fact that that our national team represents our our nation in every way uh, so it it only is fitting and makes some sense that there's some conflict within the team because there's conflict within the country Kwame, can you tell me a little bit more? Uh, just, I guess, set the stage for this. What, what is the, what happened? Um, who are, yeah, what's being said? What's being done? Sure. So I'll say a little bit about what brought it to the foremost recently in the Columbia Games. But as always, you just go backwards for context uh, after that. So um, in the most recent friendlies against Columbia. Um, during the national anthem, um, the majority of the starting lineup um, took the knee um, for the you know support of Black Lives Matter and racial justice protests that we've been seeing um, in many places, but including in professional sports um, for some time now. Um, the majority of the players, seven out of the 11 starting lineup, took the knee. Um, Four players uh, chose not to, chose to stand during the national anthem. Um, And that created a lot of dialogue, um, both online and Twitter, but also um, from journalists um, asking, you know, players their thoughts, um, asking the coaches um, their thoughts and several articles written about it. And it is, I think, an issue that is particularly um is particularly central to the position that this team uh holds in you know in the sports world in this country and you know sort of worldwide uh and so let me back up for context so the history of kneeling with the national anthem for the women's national team goes back a while so, um, as many may know, Colin Kaepernick, um, who was an NFL quarterback at the time, was really the person who started the kneeling during the national anthem protest um, uh, for, you know, sort of racial justice and against um, uh, police uh, violence against people of color. Uh, and he initially 
um, chose to sit during the national anthem and then uh, in conversing about it with a teammate who is a former military member, chose to kneel during the national anthem instead. Um, very few people outside of the NFL um, initially joined in that protest. One of the people who did, I think in 2016, um, was Megan Rapinoe. Uh, and she was the, she did it while playing for the national team. She was the only person on the team to do so. She did so repeatedly um, and stopped only when U.S. soccer um, passed a rule that all players had to stand for the national anthem. Uh, and she experienced a fair amount of pressure at the time. And it's it's difficult, I think, for us to think about now, given the position that Megan Rapino holds, the status she holds in terms of um, cultural awareness, pop culture, and, you know, spokesman for person for the team in many ways. But at the time, her position on the team was relatively precarious. Um, she had, uh, I think, missed... Um, or I think she'd been a, a she'd been on the 2015 World Cup team, I think, or maybe she missed it due to knee injury. Um, she had gone to the Olympics in 2016, um, where the U.S. did not do well, and she was actually injured going into it, um, and uh, and didn't really perform, um, you know, very much on the field, and so. Her her position on the team was precarious, and I think that there was there was a good chance that she could have been dropped from the team for her process at that time. Um, then they passed a rule, and you know she didn't kneel any longer. And you know kneeling continued to be something that uh, was on the periphery of the sports world, but wasn't really central to um, U.S. soccer. Um, then. Flash forward to this past summer when, um, you know, after the killing of George Floyd and there was the resurgence of protests, Black Lives Matter, awareness, and the NWSL, you know, the the U.S.-based women's soccer team where a lot of the national team players play, were in the midst of their season at the time. And so... A lot of the players of most of the teams um, took the knee during the national anthem. There were a lot of um, actually very sort of emotional uh, moments where, you know, players, Casey Short, um, you know, was in tears on the field during her protest. And it got a lot of attention um, and I think a lot of support by um fans of the national team, but particularly of the NWSL, of the league. Um, Now, I think the reasons that, I think for a lot of people, these protests were very meaningful and built up a lot of momentum. But I think particularly for the fan base of the NWSL and the national team, it resonated because the women's national team has long been on the forefront for fights for equality. Um, For as long as this team has been around, they have been fighting and struggling to be, you know, recognized by FIFA, recognized by U.S. soccer. Um, You know, part of the celebrations around 
the 2019 World Cup win, you know, this team included as part of their celebrations a protest for women's equality from U.S. soccer. They were in the middle of a lawsuit um, against U.S. soccer for gender equality. And they, yeah. the leaders of the team talk about that um, as easily as they talk about tactics and formation. And this is part of the history of the team. I would also say that integral to um, this team, at least in its current iteration, is um, a lot of advocacy around um, uh, LGBTQ um, rights and representation. Um, so it's it's a, it's a deep it's deeply instilled in the DNA of this team, and in some ways, unjustly so. You know, like why should uh, why should that responsibility be placed on these uh, eleven at a time? You know, this group of this group of players uh, probably shouldn't necessarily be their problem, but uh, it is something that that they've that at different times throughout my life, uh, the USWNT players have stepped up and and. Uh, Megan Rapinoe in particular, but not only her, have stepped up and, and you know, it brought some conversations to the forefront that needed to happen, not the least of which is the importance of women's sports itself. Uh, and and so there's this constant, there, it's, it's, it's such a deep part of this, what this team is and who this, who this team is and, and how this team has come to mean what it means to so many people out there in, in the fan base and maybe even some of our listeners now. Um, it's not, this is not just about soccer. So what is, what, what is your sort of read on the situation? What happens when a team who has historically, um, been in favor of, let's say increased equality or, you know, how, how to phrase that it's, it's a, it's a liberal sort of inclusivity, stance, uh, which is not held by everyone in the country. And now I think we're seeing, um, we're seeing some of that represented as well. Uh, how, what's your read on how this has affected the, the team or how this came about? Well, I want to be, I want to try to be as clear as I can about, um, a, a couple of things. Um, so one is that, um, so one is that the team has been very open that there is ongoing dialogue within the team about the decision to stand, the decision to kneel, that they're not all in agreement uh, about it, but that there is an attitude of support of one another, educating one another, engaging in in dialogue. And I do think that, you know, that is not something that that's something that can just be said, um, but I think knowing this team and knowing the ways they've talked about it and knowing, um, you know, the way that this team has, has represented themselves, I don't think those are empty words. Um, the second thing to be that I also want to make sure that I that that we're included is that when those ch players chose to stand and not to kneel. Um, they were all wearing warm-up jerseys that read Black Lives Matters emblazoned in large letters on their chests. Um, and so the kneeling the kneeling was in concert with that. 
Um, but there may be, you know, and what, what I've been thinking about, you know, sort of since that and sort of how that feels, right, is, you know, we don't know what causes a person to decide to kneel or decide to stand. Some people have tried to explain it. Others have, you know, have sort of held their peace. But, yeah, I can imagine that one position a person might have would be to say, I'm wearing Black Lives Matter emblazoned on my chest in fuel view of everyone. Kneeling before the flag is not a protest that feels sure. right to me. Um, and perhaps they would have knelt if, there, if they did not feel there was another visible way to show their support for Black Lives Matter. I also think, and this is complex, and I know we're, you know, this is a long episode, um, but I, I do want to try to, as brief as I can, but carefully as I can, sort of um, mention this, is that I think that fans of the national team that are also big fans of the NWSL um, perhaps are lean in a more progressive direction than um, than fans of the national team who um, who are generally just sort of fans of the national team mm. um, and and i'm I'm not sure about that i uh, I see where you're coming from. I mean, there is this is this team is a place to celebrate patriotism in a way that for me is is safe and inclusive and uh, loving. You know, but I and also I, I also think I, I I just wanted to say also briefly, and I don't want to I don't want to cut you off, but I, you know I started to say a word about LGBTQ advocacy and and support and and maybe. Um, the way that people think about this team and, and what they sort of ex- expectations of what they would represent. And the two are not indelibly linked, but this is one of the, I think, most visibly out high profile teams um, that that there are to sort of varying sort of degrees. But, you know, I, I would, um, there, there, are new, there are sort of numerous high profile members and some low profile members who are, you know, sort of um in um you know in um uh LGBTQ relationships um and uh are either sort of very vocal about it or sort of less vocal about it, but it it's maybe encompasses about a third of the members of the team. Um and I think that's something that the uh that certain parts of the fan base are particularly aware of and that sometimes in some ways may shape their expectation of the sort of demonstrations and uh, solidarity that they see on the field. Now, that's not to say, again, that um, kneeling um, means everything and standing means a whole other thing. This is obviously kind of very nuanced and players have their very have their own ideas about it, and we are not in the locker room for these conversations. In the same we way, we're not in the locker room for these for these dialogues. But it is something that has been on the mind and in the discussions of journalists and and fans of the team. Um, it's inter- ESPN actually covering the second game for Columbia chose not to show the national anthem, and I don't know if that was a program decision or just how it happened. Interesting for anyone out there uh, who you know is 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 in 
who's who's uh, maybe hurt or offended by the choice not to kneel. I think part of what Kwame's saying here, and correct me if I'm wrong, but I think part of it is that there are many reasons not to kneel, and we don't know what that actually says or means, um, and that it doesn't necessarily. Uh, it's not necessarily in opposition to inclusivity in general, uh, and and so what and what I think what I for one would like to just mention is that I think that the thing, the fundamental characteristic that that makes this this country what it is, is the ability to have differing opinions. So I'm pretty, you know, I'm pretty much not in agreement with the not kneeling. <laughs> like I'm mm-hmm. all, I would be kneeling. Um, but on an even more sort of fundamental or primal level, I am in support of having the choice to kneel or not. And if there are people on this team who are choosing not to kneel, I have to say, given the circumstance, that is a really brave choice. This is a situation where um, players have worked their entire lives for this opportunity. And I can only imagine, I mean, you imagine Megan Rapino doing it alone uh, five years ago. That, that, was, that was probably scary. Imagine not doing it now. How, 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 you know, how close to being potentially ostracized from this team or, or um, you know, have the, have the door of opportunity shut on you Based on this choice, is that threat is so real. I, I have to imagine for the players who made this choice. So I, I respect at least that, the bravery to, to stand for what they believe in. I think that there's actually relatively little jeopardy in terms of position on the team for the decision to kneel or not kneel, um, for particularly the, the decision to, to stand. I think that it does, um, you know, there there is criticism that can come one's way either decision um i will say that um when i was first watching the game and um i saw um which players chose to stand um i did as a you know as a black man i did uh find myself feeling a little hurt um and and saddened um, I think that it it didn't it didn't say it didn't cause me to say, oh, these people are racist or they're not in support of Black Lives Matter, because as I said, they just had the words emblazoned on their chest. And just because someone kneels doesn't mean that they actually um, are against Racism. Someone can make the decision to kneel just for expediency, certainly. Um, but it did. It did cause me to wonder where they stood, and that those moments of wondering made it, I think, harder to watch and root in the same way for that initial time watching the game. Mm-hmm. I think since then, you know, I've tried to do a lot of listening. Um, you know, to the press conferences, um, to, um, you know, podcast episodes where this has been, this has been referenced by um, the players, you know, thinking about, you know, sort of these decisions, thinking about who these players who choose to chose to kneel versus chosen to stand, who they are close to on the team, who are their friends with, what other things they are are doing so i do think it is more 
Um, I do think it is more complicated and nuanced. And but I will also say too that um, you know the relationship to a symbol um, sometimes can be very powerful. It can also sometimes uh, change and change very rapidly, and it doesn't always change the same way for people. And I, the past couple of days, I've been thinking for myself, sort of flashing back to, um, I was flashing back to the Rodney King verdict, which, you know, 1991, I think. So I I would have been, you know, I think I would have been like 13 or so. Um, And, uh, you know, I think hopefully most people know about the Rodney King verdict, but basically um, this was in Los Angeles. A motorist was caught on videotape being beaten by the police really savagely. Uh, and despite the video evidence and his horrific injuries, they were acquitted. Um, and at that time, and I'm not sure if it's still this way at schools because I don't have kids and I haven't been in classrooms, but at that time you started the day with the Pledge of Allegiance. And I remember going into school the day after the Rodney King verdict and listening to the words of the Pledge of Allegiance and feeling like those words were an absolute farce and that there was no way I was going to say them. And... Uh, and, you know, really it's kind of overnight, um, you know, I guess, I, you know, you're 13, 14, you, you know, and it's something you do every day. It was a, it, you know, it was sort of like a ritual. And I was like, yeah, like I'm an American. Right. But I remember like thinking about, you know, the end of the pledge with liberty and justice for all and not being able to have those words come out of my mouth. And not being able really to look, sort of, uh, you know, look at the flag in the same way. And so, but other people may have been saddened or upset or frustrated by the Rodney King verdict. But their relationship to the Pledge of Allegiance or other kind of symbols or rituals didn't change in the same way that mine did in that moment. Maybe, um, maybe it should have or could have. Um, and maybe if I had been able to articulate it, um, there would have been people's minds sort of coming around about it or having a different experience, or at least knowing what I meant. And this is not me saying no one should say the Pledge of Allegiance, but, um, but that's something I've been thinking about a lot as well in terms of what does it mean to kneel what does it mean to stand for the flag what does it mean to have something written on your chest what does it mean to have nothing written on your chest but actually do something and so i don't i i i think i'm at a position now where i'm you know i'm i'm rooting for this team just as hard as i am before i think um you know i think that um i'm curious to see what happens next in terms of the various endeavors that are going to be happening um and um you know what people do or don't do during the anthem is a piece of that um but as i said more than anything i have no doubt that 
there are conversations, you know, happening, and there are conversations being initiated by people who have been doing a lot of thinking about racial justice and other types of justice and what it looks like. There's a, uh, so there's that's a, where I'm at. Yeah, there's a couple things I hear in that. Uh, first of all, Kwame, thank you for for um, for going there, and we we you know I really appreciate it. Genuinely, there's there's a couple things I'm hearing there. One is that the decision to your relationship to the anthem, this is not like an Instagram sort of this like this was not a fad for you. This was not like a a phen- a social phenomenon at 13. This was this was a, a a deep and visceral reaction to a real moment in 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 during the pledge of allegiance. Which I think for, I think for a lot of folks, um, including myself, this that that's a that's a story that um, needs to be heard and needs to be told and needs to really be internalized and understood. That the choice to kneel, I'm imagining for Colin Kaepernick, you know, to sit at first, was not one of sort of a was not a an analyzed decision. It wasn't in a decision of the brain. It was a decision of of the heart. You know, and and I think that that's it's really important to understand how different the experience of a protest choice can be for people who you know are in the line of fire and people who are not, and people who have experienced oppression in America and people who have not, um, and people who yeah who 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 could be in danger today and people who are not right. And so I'm not, I'm not so so I'm asking listeners to. F- to go along with me on this journey and, and try to reckon with that as much as possible and understand um, that that for me, Clayton, you know, this is a this is a thinking thing that I read books about and I, I talk to people about and I try to understand as well as I can. It is, you know, I did not have that moment at 13. Um, and so there's a difference between our experiences. Uh, the other thing that I'm hearing in this is the importance of, of conversation and that like one of the things I uh, that you mentioned in there is that you you don't think that it's um, just sort of a phony messaging that they're having real conversations in the locker room about this uh, that that you that it seems like that's really the case that there actually are real conversations happening uh, on this team between people who do not agree and I would encourage us all including you know uh, myself first and foremost. To, to attempt to have some of those conversations, you know, um, either in, in one way or another, maybe it's to take, to, to understand the other side. And that's not just, you know, um, that's not for one side or the other. I think, I think that there are many people who are in full support who would totally kneel a hundred percent, but who simply can't wrap their heads around why it's important for, for someone to, let's say, have the right to bear arms. You know, and like, I get that, but let's, let's take each other seriously and really, really actually talk to each other and try to understand how intelligent people have come to such different conclusions. Uh, I think, I think that's, that's an important thing to, to attempt and do our best. Um, at, so where, where are we, Kwame? We're, we're a hundred percent, uh, we've gone to a completely different place. We've gone to, we've gone to a different place, but you know, I think a good place. And I, because you know, I, as I said, I think, you know, part of the, um, you know, sports in general, right? I think part of the attraction 
is, well, for many people, right, is what it means outside of like the sort of pure competition or outside of the pure entertainment, right? It's, um, it, it's who, you know, gets to be seen. It's about visibility. Um, it's also that through the lens of sports, people can, um, you know, can advocate for certain things. Um, you know, the example, right, that's coming to mind right now, right, of Marcus Rashford, who's a soccer player in England. And for people who don't, you know, follow that, um, basically during, basically, um, Marcus Rashford grew up um, quite poor and um, relying on, um, you know, meals at school um, and and other sorts of support for things like that. And the uh British government was uh, sort of cutting those things, particularly during kind of COVID when people weren't in school. And he basically started a campaign to get them basically to keep feeding millions of needy kids in England who, who, you know, and he had been, he's, I think he's 23. So it's not that long ago that he has been in that position. Um, you know, there have been articles where, you know, he would show up to training for Manchester United. And these are incredibly competitive things at like 14, 15. And he would show up to, you know, training and he hadn't, you know, he'd eaten, you know, like a meal that day or something like that. And the coaches could talk about how they could tell, you know, um, when he hadn't had enough to eat. Uh, and so, you know, we have people who sometimes can, uh, make big changes um, in in ways that are sort of more wide ranging than than uh, than sports and can get people to listen, uh, you know. And whether that's in terms of racial justice or politics or charities um, or uh, or labor rights, uh, that's the only way you can get people to pay attention to uh, unions <laughs> and labor rights in this country is if you put it through the lens of. Uh, you know, you know, collective bargaining agreements for the NFL. Uh, that's what I often do. I'm a hoot at parties because of that. Um, <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, there's that. And so I, I think this is definitely, you know, sort of an invitation to think about where, um, you know, where people are and also what, you know, what people may individually do, right? Um, you know, most people aren't going to be positioned where they're choosing to stand or kneel before a flag on television. Um, but there are other decisions that they have in their life of things to do, who they're going to talk to, who is they're going to associate, who they're going to stand up for, um, uh, who they're going to uh, sort of advocate for um, when they are and they are not going to allow themselves to be uh, uncomfortable. Um, and uh, and so I, I hope that that is also something that that gets that gets taken away from from all of this, in addition to being entertained by uh, some of the best and most competitive. In addition uh, to the ball in, the ball in, the ball to, the, in to the straight ball. Uh, I tell, we, uh, <laughs> I tell you what, I tell you what, Kwame, you are invited to all of my parties post COVID. When I, when when all the parties happen, I want you're you're. You say you're a hoot. Ironically, I I take I took it literally. 
This is this has been an amazing conversation. Um, and I can't wait for She Believes Cup. Let's do this thing. I'm glad to have had the chance to talk about it with you in all the ways that we did. Uh, <laughs> I feel like we covered a lot. There's a few things on the table, but I think we have to leave them there. <laughs> I think so. Yeah. Hey, man, we'll uh, we'll we'll get there eventually. Well, we've got we've got more eps to come. Folks, stay with us. Uh, we need you. What are we without you, listeners? We love you guys. Hey, let uh, let your voice be heard. If you didn't feel like you heard uh, your perspective in this conversation, let us know it. Reach out to us on Twitter. Uh, we want to, to to highlight your experience and learn from it if we can and and figure this whole thing out together. Ugh, I love I I never loved school lunch, I have to say. I, I I wish, you know, wish I wish I could say that I did, but I had the privilege of of being able to bring lunchables to school and trade those around for various wares and goods. Really like the lunchables. I like the ham in the Lunchables quite a lot. I loved playing handball in the courtyards uh, in, in school. That was a good, old-fashioned, uh, fun time, and I always thought it was strange that there was American handball and Chinese handball. And I never totally under, got to the bottom of how that started. But I tell you what, I don't love any of that shit as much as I, as I absolutely love the Nats. Let's go. Let's go, she believes. It's We The Peeps. It's We The Peeps. Welcome to We The Peeps. Are you ready for We The Peeps? Holy moly, it's We The Peeps. <laughs>